Hello, and welcome to Voices in Healthcare Finance. I'm Erica Grotto. In today's episode, we have part two of my interview with Anish Krishna of McKinsey & Company about strategies for healthcare organizations in times of recession. I'll also be talking with HFMA's president and CEO, Joe Pfeiffer, about the call to action he issued in his February column in HFM magazine. In our Fast Five segment, we'll look at denials by the numbers. First, let's see what's happening in the news with Rich and Chad. Hello, this is Rich Daly, a senior writer and editor for HFMA. Hi, this is Chad Mulvaney, a policy director from HFMA. Thanks for joining us today on the Beyond the News segment of the podcast, where we take a quick look at the significance of recent healthcare finance news developments. Today, Chad and I are going to focus on some new research that was published in JAMA Internal Medicine. It focused on not-for-profit hospitals and found those that generated the highest net incomes provided less charity care to patients relative to their incomes compared to their lower earning peers. The study, which analyzed data from 2,563 not-for-profit short-term general hospitals, found that not-for-profit hospitals collectively earned $47.9 billion in net income in 2017 and provided $14.2 billion in charity care that same year. So, Chad, what's our top line here? What's your key takeaways and, and what's the uh, fuller picture that this study may not have gotten? You, you said a lot, and I think some of our more experienced listeners will automatically sort of pick up kind of one of the top lines off of this, is that the study has some methodological issues with it. First, just mathematically, if you're looking at charity care provided based on net income, you know, mathematically, a hospital with a lower net income, i.e. a safety net hospital, will provide more charity care relative to their income. And that's probably exactly right because they're safety net institutions in economically challenged neighborhoods. And the people in those neighborhoods probably kind of, if you think about Maslow's hierarchy of need, are probably more likely to need health care before anything else that falls under the community benefit continuum. By contrast, if you're a community hospital in a relatively affluent area, there are other ways that you can demonstrate or merit your tax-exempt status beyond just providing free care and uncompensated care. And so that's one of the nuances the study didn't pick up because the second flaw in it is that it looked only at Medicare cost report data. It didn't use the IRS 990 to pick up the full host of tax-exempt issues. Now, despite these fairly significant flaws with the study, at least from my perspective, I'm not sure how much that really matters to the broader community because obviously we're in a, the country right now is in a relatively progressive mood, if you will. And so I think we are continuing to see a lot more scrutiny of not-for-profit health system tax exempt status. And so when these types of headlines come out, I don't know if the average reader or the average congressman or the average senator, either at the state or federal level, when they read this, starts to think about the technical definition of how hospitals merit their tax-exempt status. Sounds potentially significant for these organizations. So my question would be, how could they let policymakers and uh, the public know there's a bigger story here, there's, there's more to this, and there's more that we're doing? Most, if not all, not-for-profit health systems have some type of community benefit report that they share with their community leaders, make available on their website that tells their community benefit story. I think in this current environment, what they need to do is, you know, you can also calculate the implicit sort of foregone taxes that the the state and federal government have 
not collected as a as, as a result of you being a not-for-profit entity. So, you know, including that in there and then telling that story, you know, comparing what you're providing to what was foregone and showing the value that you're creating by being a not-for-profit tax-exempt entity, I think would be one step. But I think you come up with a very specifically defined list of people at both influential community leaders, so within the business community, within the religious community, so that you can build allies that support your cause, but then also going to your state legislators and your congressional delegation and your federal senators to tell that story and make sure that they understand the value of, of tax-exempt status. My concern is, is that as we've seen with Senator Sanders now taking, at least having the lead position right now in the Democratic primary, were he to be elected, you know, I think most reasonable people agree that Medicare for all in the next four years or, or, or even a public option will be challenging in the next four years. Once his agenda is frustrated by his inability to move things through the Senate and or the House, he may turn to look to regulatory means to enact some portion of his agenda. And so one way to do this that might also have some bipartisan support, given that Senator Chuck Grassley has also been a heavy scrutinizer of hospitals not-for-profit status, might be to look at redefining internally at the IRS administratively what qualifies as a tax-exempt hospital or how you can qualify as a tax-exempt hospital. And so one way to do it might be to take it back to the old definition from, I think it was the mid-60s, where tax-exempt status was purely predicated on, on the amount of indigent care you provided or uncompensated care you provided. So it sounds like hospitals have a pretty strong incentive to take some action in this area in terms of outreach and education. The kind of steps you were talking about, is, is that costly? Is it going to be resource intensive for hospitals and health systems to do that? Yeah, no, Rich, I think you're exactly right. A, a, an ounce of prevention here is worth a pound of cure. And I don't think it's going to be particularly costly. I think it's just going to require some more thoughtful work, both with your community relations and your governmental relations. Because as I mentioned, most hospitals already are producing a community benefit report, so they can pretty quickly put their finger on the dollar value of what they're providing to the community. And it's usually buried off on some corner of the webpage and it's, it's trotted out. But I think a, a more aggressive strategy of telling that story both to key influential individuals within the community and then also to the local media to make sure that story gets out there, that people understand the value of having a tax-exempt hospital in their community. Well, excellent. Thank you for your insights on this key issue. Thanks for joining us today on the segment here, Chad. All right. Thanks, Rich. Always a pleasure to talk with you. You can keep up with the latest news developments in healthcare finance policy and practice by checking out our daily news page at hfma.org forward slash news. Does it keep you up at night? The challenge of looking beyond the now to develop near and long-term financial sustainability strategies? Don't face it alone. Join us for the inaugural Financial Sustainability Summit in Denver on April 16th and 17th. Learn how leading organizations are helping healthcare executives navigate today's market pressures to build a more financially sustainable future. You'll hear proven strategies on portfolio management, including consolidation, innovation, cost management, acquisition, diversification, and strategic partnerships. Learn more at hfma.org FSS. Two weeks ago, we played part one of my interview with Anish Krishna, a partner at McKinsey & Company, about the challenges healthcare organizations might see when the next economic downturn occurs. If you haven't heard that episode, today's interview will probably be more useful if you go back and listen to it first. 
For today, Krishna and I are discussing what leaders should be looking at now in order to be resilient in times of recession. First, though, we're talking a little more about how Medicaid expansion comes into play. To understand Medicaid, we looked at projected Medicaid costs for expansion states. And before even you go to a recessionary scenario, there's going to be a reduction, potential reduction in the uh, federal match program. So that's going to have increased their financial burden a little bit. Then there's going to be potentially, a, uh, assuming all these you know changes that are lined up actually happen, in dish payments, which is a disproportionate share hospital payments effective in 2020, which is this year. When you add those two up, there's already additional financial strain on those state Medicaid budgets before even, you know, we talk about any recession. Now, if a recession happens this year or next year, likely there's going to be both an increase of cost for the non-expansion members. So you're just going to see some more of those members. And then you're going to also see the incremental cost for expansion members. When you add that all up together, a lot of the state's budget would be strained. So we did this analysis and we feel, you know, if you look at 2018, you know, Medicaid cost was 26% of the state revenue. And that's likely to increase up to 35%, depending on what kind of recessionary scenario you end up with. Now, that's a meaningful increase. And when you then break it down across the 50 states and you look at the number of lives that will enter Medicaid and the rainy day funds they have, when we looked at that, the extent of the financial strain, most of the states in the country are likely to face a financial strain just because the combination of those two is quite high. And then they're probably a very small subset that have sufficient rainy day funds and are not you know, going to see so much of enrollment increase that they'll be able to cover up for that. So we are likely to see increasing financial pressures on the state. And, and whenever that li- tends to happen, while we don't anticipate the states are going to change eligibility, that's in a recessionary environment, that's probably the last thing anybody would want to do because people are already struggling personally. But we do see that that's going to potentially result in reduction in rates to the providers or reduction in capitated rates to the managed care organizations. And so both the payers and the providers are going to see some of that financial strain more than before. And as we all know, Medicaid, both for the payers and providers, already are at razor-thin margins. So we're going to see some more pressure on that. And the lower-performing plans or the lower-performing providers, you know, for them, it's all going to hit towards that bottom line and create considerable financial strain. Taking in all of this into account, what should healthcare organizations be looking at now as they consider their strategies for the future? This is a question we get quite often. We've been talking to a, you know, a lot of healthcare organizations. So I would say a few things. One of them we talked about earlier, which is you know, preparing their balance sheets. And we absolutely uh, want them to prepare their balance sheets. This would usually start with some sort of scenario planning and identifying the triggers in which they would make some changes to their uh, balance sheet. But regardless, you know, assessing under a few scenarios uh, what would, you know, how much strain the balance sheet will, it will have and managing to that would be one critical element. Now, not only do you want to have a strong balance sheet because uh, you want to have enough cash when you're going through a recession, but then it ties to our second strategy, which is we, we have typically seen that resilient organizations would aggressively pursue both M&A as well as divestiture programs. So typically during a recession or right coming out of it, you'll see a lot of assets are valued less than what they were before a recession. So if there was any any overvaluation that existed before a recession and some you know experts would say right now a lot of assets are overvalued, when you go into a recession, that correction happens. And so you're able to 
acquire assets that you pre- previously were not able to. Uh, several leaders we talked to are thinking about that. We've seen it in other industries. We've seen it in the last recession. You know, divestiture right before a recession is helpful, and M&A right, you know, through the downturn or coming out of the recovery could be a great strategy. But, but to be able to execute on that, healthcare organizations need to have a coherent strategy because you can't just acquire an asset, uh, you know, just because something is available in the market. It's got to be consistent with the overall strategy. And there's got to be a way in which it gets integrated and gets scaled within that organization. So, so it's important to think about what that roadmap might look like, what those potential targets could look like, and therefore, you know, have a path uh, or at least have some options, you know, should a recession strike. Uh, and then the third thing healthcare organizations should do, in our view, is they really need to focus on uh, productivity and uh, really driving operating costs out. Uh, you know, we would say that this is something you should absolutely start before a recession because that gives you the opportunity to firstly not put in place change under financial strain, rather put in place change that is sustainable over a longer term. It also gives you the opportunity, you know, where you end up with uh, job cuts to redeploy those people because, you know, a lot of costs in healthcare are still labor related. And so any kind of efficiencies that you drive quite often has a component of people being impacted. But if you do that early enough, you can manage a lot through attrition, natural attrition rates, or you could redeploy, uh, you know, some of the talent you have in the organization that gets, you know, surplus as as a result of this. So, you know, I think those are the three things at a broad strategic level are important for healthcare organizations to do. And, you know, one overarching point I would make here is, at least we would urge the goal for most organizations shouldn't be just to come out even post-recession. The goal should be come out even stronger. And and companies that really put a lot of thought into that come out a lot stronger uh, out of a recession and then as a result are able to better serve their members or their patients, you know, depending on, you know, whether you're a payer or a provider. And, and we feel that there's a great opportunity to do that, especially, you know, given the conversation of a potential recession that's going on these days. Enabling consumerism is more important than ever. Find out how well your revenue cycle is meeting consumers' needs and get actionable advice on how you can take it to the next level. Hear takeaways on how to improve performance from HFMA's new consumerism maturity model. Join us for the HFMA Revenue Cycle Conference in New Orleans on March 30th through April 1st and earn up to 14 CPE credits. Learn more at hfma.org rcc. I've been hearing our president and CEO, Joe Pfeiffer, speak passionately about consumerism in healthcare since my first HFMA staff meeting in 2015. And I'm sure many of our listeners are familiar with his position that healthcare providers need to be more consumer friendly. But in recent months, he's become even more vocal. In an interview with Rich Daly in the January issue of HFM, and in his From the President column in the February issue, Joe talked about some of the big challenges facing the industry and issued a call to action on the part of leaders to do better. Recently, I talked with him about his bold new approach and how it's going so far. I hope you don't mind me telling this story, but when we were getting ready to send our January issue to print, I asked you if you were nervous about the cover story and your picture appearing on the cover, and you said, no, but you thought you'd get some good-natured teasing from friends, but you did say you were very nervous about your column in February and how that would be received. So how has it been received so far? Well, all that is true, and it took Brad Dennison on our team 
about two weeks to convince me to put my <laughs> my picture on the cover. So it's not something that I ever thought would happen, and it's not uh, in my first nature. I you know probably, but it made sense, and for all kinds of reasons that we can talk about, it was the right thing to do. So to get to your question, yes, the good natured ribbing has occurred. A <laughs> um, couple of examples, uh, and, and it has been fun. I spoke at the Iowa chapter meeting a couple weeks ago, and uh, unbeknownst to me, uh, the person introducing me had up at the podium, and he left up on a podium the magazine itself, and you know raised it up for everybody to see, and you know I could feel myself blushing, <laughs> and, and so you know I came right out of the gates and addressed that, and that was a lot of fun. I got into the office a couple of weeks ago, and sitting on my office chair, and then. Uh, at a conference table in my office were two poster size pictures of my ugly mug. <laughs> I was sitting there that, you know, the cover of the magazine and a poster size. Of course, then family and friends, uh, you know, a lot of people are teasing me about it. So it, it has been good natured and has been fun. But what's come with that humor has been uh, a deeper expression of uh, maybe a sentiment of gratitude and and even uh, a sentiment of pride in that these are issues we all know about. And I think deep down, most of us in the industry would like to have, you know, we don't want to be reading about ourselves with our, our prices or the processes where, you know, patients get caught up in the middle and the whole surprise bill and all those kinds of things that happen. People don't want to get, you know, caught up in the middle of that. And so I think deep down, there's some gratitude and some pride in the message. I'm not naive to the the fact that people rarely come up to me when I do something and say, well, that really stinks. And who knows what they're talking about, you know, without me in the room. But what I have heard, the reaction that I have heard has been uh, quite positive. I have heard some pretty positive response as well. You know, posting on social media or in our communities, people are saying, yeah, this all makes sense. So yeah, it's interesting. You you, know, you mentioned social media because I've spent a fair amount of time tracking that more intently in the weeks that followed both the interview in January and the column in February. I, I tracked some of the social media. And of course, that's a venue where it seems like, you know, bravery increases uh, when people are on a keyboard and they don't hold back. And uh, I honestly, I have not seen anything negative, even in the social media world. When I was reading your February column, it just, it felt like tough love to me. Well, you know, it's interesting. I, I take parenting seriously and I got three kids and a daughter-in-law that I'm so proud of. And I'd like to think that I played a role in, you know, their well-being as adults. I don't know that I was always the best tough love parent. <laughs> you know, I think my wife, Katie, probably did a way better job of that than I did. But uh, there's probably an element of truth to that analogy. In your column, you talk about several reasons that the industry isn't consumer friendly. And you say these are all valid reasons. But the biggest one to me seems to be apathy, that everything else could be addressed if the industry leaders wanted to address it. Why do you think that it's not a priority? Why do you think this apathy occurs? Well, first of all, every word was well thought out. And I understand and realize that the word apathy it's a strong word, and, and the use of that word could be irritating to folks all by itself. So I really have two reasons that I use that word. First is the passage of time. I understand that getting to a very consumer-friendly set of processes, whether it's on the digital side or the communications with patients or members, is not an easy thing to do. It's probably a multi-year process. 
I think it's less than that. My own experience is that it's less than that, but I'll give some grace and understand that everybody's environments are different and their contracts are different and what they can do and not do. And so let's say for sake of discussion that it's a multi-year process to go from a patient unfriendly environment in terms of revenue cycle to one that's friendly. But we at HFMA started talking about these issues back in the mid 2000s when we had a consumerism report and a uh, pricing report. And then we've had a series of guidance. There's thousands of pages of guidance on our website in you know the 15 years or so that we've been talking about this. And the fact is that it's the passage of time and the lack of movement by many health systems that gives me some anxiety, I guess, which leads into the second reason. The best I can tell that patient financial communications or consumer-friendly processes are not in the organizational strategies at the highest level for most health systems. And while I don't have survey data, this is anecdotal information, but I ask a lot of questions. And I've been interested in this issue for many, many years. And virtually all systems have a strategy for patient engagement. Many times they have an executive in charge of it, or at least they tag one executive to oversee it among their other responsibilities. And so the the engagement part is there, but hardly anybody have patient financial communications or other revenue cycle-based consumerism tactics as part of that high-level patient engagement strategy. An example of that is most satisfaction surveys don't ask the questions about what patients' perceptions were uh, navigating through the revenue cycle process. So to me, that's pretty clear evidence, both the passage of time and the fact that it's not reflected at the highest level in the C-suite of organizations' discussions and in their highest level of, of strategies tells me that it's just not been a priority. So you talked a little bit about HFMA's many, many resources around consumerism, the newest of which is our consumerism maturity model. Um, And I hope that it's okay to put a little plug in. I've got an article in the March issue of HFM about the model. And from what I hear, it's been really well received so far. How can this model help our members do what you ask them to do in this call to action that you've, you've put forth? You know, I didn't want to drop a big problem in the middle of the table and then just sit back and see if anybody does anything. So there's a strategy at HFMA that our members should be aware of, and it will be evident over the coming months of not only advocating for this maturity model, but in some cases, updating and republishing you know, much of our guidance or just republishing or, or making our members aware of the guidance that's out there. It's a simple self-evaluation tool to help people evaluate their revenue cycle processes, or more specifically, how patients are treated in that revenue cycle journey. And if done honestly, it puts executives and managers alike in, I guess, an empathetic view of of the patient. And what does the patient feel like as they go through this process, if they go through that maturity model, again, with integrity and do it honestly and evaluate themselves in reality. So that's how we think it will help. And then once that evaluation is done, then obviously like any evaluation where there are shortfalls, which everyone will have, this is, there's no perfect model out there, then it just gives folks a game plan, so to speak, or a, uh, an area to focus on as they evaluate their consumers and practices. One thing I really liked about the maturity model was once you identify those areas you need to focus on, 
it points you to HFMA resources and resources elsewhere that tell you how to do the thing that it's telling you to do. We really have this attitude, and this might sound a little sappy, but I really mean this, and, and we're pretty passionate about this consumerism process. But it is not our intent to just throw out some stuff and sit back and see if people react to it. We're in this with our members, and we want to be part of it. We're not a consulting company. We're not doing this to promote consulting. That's not our gig, but we want to be right there with them. And so that the fact that that not only is it an evaluation, but it points people into resources, I think is another example of being there in the game with them as they navigate through the changes that are necessary. It's a big ship to turn. There's no doubt about it. But here's the sentiment that got expressed multiple times. If not us, who? If not HFMA to take a leadership position and be in a catalyst role, then who will? And that's another reason, again, back to the overall sentiment that I'm trying to express here. You know, if we could be a catalyst for the change that we can all in an honest moment agree that's necessary, then we should be. And again, if not us, who? I would say to members, I'm always open to your thoughts and comments. I participate in several of the community groups that we rolled out in the last year on our website. That's a great place to have these kinds of dialogues. My email address, jpfeiffer at hfma.org is right on our website. And I'm wide open to a member's thoughts and concerns. And uh, I address them personally. So anyway, I appreciate the chance to chat about it, Erica. And again, great job. I really appreciate what you're doing for us. Of course, if you want to hear more from Joe, you can listen to him every other week right here on Voices in Healthcare Finance as he interviews the healthcare industry's big movers and shakers. In the meantime, let us know what you think of Joe's call to action. You've heard him say he wants to know, and so do we. And if you've taken the assessment in the consumerism maturity model, let us know that too. I'd love to talk with some health systems that are taking steps to improve their consumer strategies. And of course, please consider attending our Revenue Cycle Conference in March. That entire event is centered around the consumerism maturity model, and there's going to be some great focused education. So check that out at hfma.org events. issue of HFM will be dropping soon, and I know a lot of you will be interested in the cover topic, Denials Management. For today's Fast Five, we're dipping our toe in the water with five numbers that are key to the topic. According to Change Healthcare's Healthy Hospital Revenue Cycle Index, an appeal costs $118 per claim, which amounted to $8.6 billion in administrative costs in 2016. 20% of revenue cycle management expenses go toward denials-related issues, according to HFMA data. 67% of denials are recoverable, according to advisory board company data. Advisory board company also says 90% of denials are preventable. By adequately addressing denials, a typical hospital can yield $5 to $10 million in cash recoveries, according to numbers furnished by Advisory Board Company and Health Business Insights. Information for this Fast Five was provided by Jonathan Wick, Principal of Healthcare Strategy at TransUnion. Voices in Healthcare Finance is produced by the Healthcare Financial Management Association and written and hosted by me, Erica Grotto. Sound editing is by Linda Chandler. Brad Dennison is our Director of Content Strategy. Our President and CEO is Joe Pfeiffer. 
We have some great events coming up. We've already mentioned the Revenue Cycle Conference in March. In April, we're holding our very first Financial Sustainability Summit, and that's already getting some nice buzz. And of course, there's our always great annual conference in June. Learn more and register for any of those at hfma.org events. And as always, we want to hear from you. What kinds of interviews do you want to hear on the podcast? Do you have a great story to share? Please reach out at podcast at hfma.org. No, it does not.